this is Emma from the Pineapple Lounge. I'm really excited about today's episode. It's our first chat with one of the members of our Hack Squad, which is our global panel of Gen Z and millennial parent tastemakers, influencers and innovators. Today I'm speaking to LA, who's dialing in from Mexico, and she has a fascinating insight for us into how Gen Z are thinking about topics such as politics, gender equality, and feminism. Welcome, LA. Thank you, Emma. It's it's great to be here. It's brilliant to have you here. So you are part of our hack squad um, and we're super excited to speak to you today because I know that you are very passionate about lots of different social issues and you advocate for certain causes and have been quite um, active in, in kind of expressing your opinions on some of those things. So I'm really eager to dig into some of those things with you. Before we start, would you be able to... Um, Give us a little introduction to yourself, who you are, where you are in the world, um, and, and kind of a little bit about the things that you care about. Yes, of course. Well, I'm Ale, I'm 16, and I'm from Mexico City. Just lived here all my life. So um, I am a high school student. I'm about to enter my second to last year of high school. And I'm really into politics and social justice, mostly like the way politicians interact with the people they're, um, Mm -hmm. well, supposed to be looking over. I'm interested in feminism. I'm interested in marriage equality. I'm interested in, well, basically all kinds of social justice is mostly what I care about. I'm really involved in Model United Nations, so, Hmm. I mean, if it's a global issue, chances are I'm interested in it. Great, we're going to dig deep into some of those. I mean, if you're you're into politics, there's there's quite a lot to talk about. We could be here a while (laughs) with everything that's going on at the moment. But first of all, tell me a bit about growing up as a teenager in Mexico City. Um, I uh, live in the south of England in a seaside, quite sleepy town, um, which is probably uh, a world away from the hustle and bustle of life in Mexico City. So paint a bit of a picture for me of what it's like to be a teenager growing up there. Of course. I mean, living in the biggest city in Latin America, it's mm. it's quite fun at times, if not unpredictable most of the time. Um, of course, I can't speak for most teenagers in my country, as my country is one of big socioeconomic divisions and I am privileged mm. enough to become uh, to belong to the part that has access to education that has access to opportunities um, at least on my end it's growing up here provides you a lot of opportunities to um, kind of explore around like we're a city with a lot of museums so growing up mm. here it's it's never the same weekend plan for me at least which is really mm. nice Uh, I go to an international school, which is, um, of course, not the reality for most people here. But that is one of the things I most enjoy about living here. Um, Growing up here also means, I'd say, you have a little more disconnect with the news and what's going on here. Uh, than teenagers in the US or maybe the UK do, simply because we have 
um, like our media, our mainstream media is a lot more convoluted than, uh, say, CNN or the BBC. Mm. So if if you're a teenager growing up here and you want to get into global issues or you want to know what's going on in your country, you're going to have to dig a little deeper or do some of your own investigation into it because it's not mm. like you're given that exactly. That's interesting. So is it more like a kind of a local media bubble, would you say? Yes, definitely for the majority of the country, it's a local media bubble. And that just kind of bleeds into a lot of uh, weaponized political propaganda. Like in 2012, when there was a presidential election, there was actually a, an investigation by The Guardian that looked into how the well then-elect president uh, Enrique Peña Nieto had used and twisted mainstream media to win his mm. own campaign. So it's kind of that, um, it's hard to trust the local media, but at the same time for a lot of us, it's uh, very difficult or tiring to go into media from other countries. Yeah, sure. And did your interest of more, uh, I guess, a kind of more global viewpoint come from being at international school or is there something else that's piqued your interest there? Well, I think I've I've always been interested in history. Uh, my mom says going to museums with me can be either the best or the worst thing, uh, <laughs> depending on how much you like being guided around. But I think it was definitely my change from a Catholic school, very traditional, uh, to a more open and liberal international mm. school that really kind of fostered this interest in learning more about global issues and such. Yeah, that's really that's really interesting. Um, could you maybe describe a little bit about, um, I guess, how different it felt at those two different learning environments? What 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 are the kind of significant changes that you saw and felt shifting from one to the other? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a change of a lifetime for me. Mm. Um, so back, I guess one of the biggest changes that I liked the most about switching from Catholic, traditional, my mom went to that school, my grandmother taught at that school, uh, to a more open environment, was that suddenly I had a hard time getting bored. Mm. What happened to me in Catholic school was that I finished my work in, like, let's say the allotted time was two hours to do a history reading and answer some questions, and I'd have it done in a half hour. And so what I did back there was that um, sometimes I was forbidden from reading in class, um, mm -hmm. Other times I busied myself by like making my own books out of construction paper and like a glue stick and then writing and drawing in them. But overall, I had like a hard time being challenged or occupied mm -hmm. all the time. Like the material mm -hmm. was basic level and even for elementary, like where, you know, we struggled with a few more things like by the time fifth grade rolled around, I'd already seen World War Two about three or four times. Mm -hmm. So I guess the big difference for me was that when I changed, I suddenly didn't get bored all that much. And mm. instead of being like ostracized a little for being uh, interested in academics and interested in... Because what happened to me in Catholic school was every girl in my class was a dancer, mm -hmm. except me and a couple other girls. So like there was that kind of 
pressure to do things and conform to a certain model. And then it happened that like for a lot of them, their mothers were friends. So like that kind of environment. And then mm. I changed and I started finding people from all different backgrounds and all different interests like I joined a basketball mm. team and I joined theater and I joined debate club and in each of those things I had a different group of friends that mm. was like that related to a different part of me so I like yeah that that makes a lot. a lot of sense and why do you think it's not possible to get to get to that within um the, the sort of more formal education that you were in because I, I see a similar thing here and I think it's a sort of universal insight that you know if it feels like everyone's kind of into the same thing and you just don't fit into that tribe where do you go next but it feels like you're now in an environment where you can be lots of different things and you can explore all parts of your identity so why why wasn't that happening happening in the the sort of more mainstream school that you were in? Well, I think, first of all, they were used to doing things a certain way. Um, like, as I mentioned, my mom went to that school, so, like, and she told me that things really hadn't changed since she was there. So I think it's, like, the the want to keep doing things in a mm. way that has worked in the past is a, like sometimes a justification for people to keep doing that even if times have changed but i yeah. also think that it has to do with a lack of distinct opportunities like my catholic school mm. did not have a theater club did not have a debate program um yeah. that did not have advanced classes and so i think uh, and one of the things i like the most about my new international school is how like opportunity focused and individualized everything is because they mm. have like a lot more um, places and areas for students to develop and to become like their own person. Like I, I have a friend who's really into theater production and that's a thing that wouldn't have been possible some anywhere else that didn't have the theater mm. facilities and the school that was rooting for their students to um become like specialized in their areas of interest so i guess when you mm. start thinking of school not as an institution but as a place to develop both academically mm. and individually that's when things start kind of improving yeah i love that thought as a school as, as a place to, to develop um your potential but it feels like uh, for many mainstream schools there is this tension between uh, kind of what's possible and alternative routes to success in the future versus, as you say, what's always been done and tradition. Do you see that tension in Mexico? Because I certainly see it here in the UK and in the US as well. Oh, yes, absolutely. In like, again, I'm lucky that my school is the exception to the rule because the vast majority of the country's educational system and like just uh, we have a lot of religious schools. So like religious schools and the public education system in general are like kind of fall all into that pattern. I mean, yeah. uh, when I was in elementary school, I was using books whose maps hadn't been updated since the 50s. And wow. Yeah. 
<laughs> so I think it's that, like, that's certainly very prevalent in Mexico. I think in religious schools, it's mostly because, like, that's the way it's been done and that's the way that they're used to doing it. And, like, they're mm. all the people that used to run my school were um, old nuns that had come from Spain specifically yeah. to, like, found the school. Yeah. But in the case of the public education system, I believe it is because um, we don't have any resources devoted to making anything better. Like the education budget is abysmal. Mexico is a country with a with a very overt corruption problem. Mm. And we have a government currently that's uh, making that's like kind of rolling back all of the educational reforms that have been made simply because they were made by opposition parties. I'm just gonna just pause a sec Ale are you um touching your microphone or is your microphone very close to your mouth I'm just getting um a lot of like rustling or movement on your mic I'm not but I can move it farther away if that works yeah it's just it's just there's quite a lot of um it seems very close to your your voice I'm hearing your breath quite a lot yeah I'm sorry I'm not used to using this microphone but not at all that sounds much better. All right. Perfect. And the good news is my echo's gone as well, so that's good. Yay, that, that <laughs> is good news. Um, okay, great. Right, okay, let me dive back in. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting that you talk about um, th- this sort of observation because I think one of the things, this kind of hunch that I have working with um, a lot of young people and studying generations is that there is this kind of sense among young people that they have been raised at a completely different time and their viewpoint on the world almost feels completely unique from other generations and yet you must still follow quite traditional linear paths to get to adulthood be that um, traditional archaic education with books from the 50s or um you know kind of um you know decisions that are just you're taking them because that's what your parents did and that's what other people did but it feels like for the first time probably because of the the time that you guys have entered into the digital um revolution that actually a lot of people a lot of young people are kind of thinking I don't really know I don't really know why I'm doing this. Like these jobs aren't going to be around when I'm older. I don't know if I want to do that. I can see there's loads of other ways to make money, but I'm still kind of being forced to do this. Like, does does this kind of sound familiar, what I'm saying? Does any of that sort of resonate with you? Oh, yes. Unfortunately, yes. Um, I think it's, I mean, and it's especially interesting here because this is um, like a country with... uh, like family culture here is much different than in the US and the UK. Like, yeah, it's it's common. It's the normal thing here for students to live with their parents, even in college and like mm. up until they get married, whereas in the US, that's considered like a failure. So mm. there's definitely that family culture and that like big traditionalism that probably has to do with the fact that the majority of the country is Roman Catholic. Um, and it's not not about the religion itself because my family themselves are roman catholic but it's more about like the idea of tradition and continuing on in this tradition that's like mm. stalled a lot of different reforms like we had a mayor that introduced um 
like marriage equality to Mexico City. And there was this big pushback from society just because of, you know, it wasn't the traditional way to do things. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's interesting that it's not necessarily about the religious principles. It's more upholding traditions and kind of the conformities that have always existed. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's it's the first time because people here take refuge in their traditions because our government for pretty much all of its history has been a complete mess. So, I mean, I hate to say it, but that's just um, how it <laughs> you is. You can say it. <laughs> and I think a lot of people here take refuge in their traditions. And mm. so this is the first generation that has access to other ways to escape um, this routine. And for my generation, I believe it's the internet. Like, mm. my parents are both traditional in the sense that they, well, they both went to college, they did a postgraduate degree, they, um, they're, like, they go to church every Sunday. And I'm, like, I, I feel my ideas differing from theirs in ways that I believe wouldn't have been possible if I didn't have the internet. Like, I learned about feminism from the internet. I learned about LGBT equality from the internet. I learned about uh, what racism was and about, like, the patriarchy. And the other day, I actually found myself in an argument with... Well, a discussion with my parents in which Hmm. uh, we were talking about the Me Too movement. Hmm. And we both had... Like, we had very different approaches to it. And I think, um, like, their approach... And it's not like I'm calling my parents bigots or anything, because it's just sure. culture, I but I guess. But we have very different approaches to, like, that kinds of things. Because I told... I remember telling my dad, uh, well, you know, the Me Too movement does fall into feminism because, the, you know, the patriarchy plays a big role in it. And my dad was mm-hmm. like, what's the patriarchy? Like, isn't that when, like, it's a man that's the leader? Like, in a house where the man is the leader, he's the patriarch? And I was like, well, but... And I just stopped myself and I went, well, I'm probably not going to explain this to my dad because I don't want to get into the ins and outs of this. But it's mm. it was a starking, like, it was a wake-up call for me in, in mm. how deep that divide goes sometimes. That things my generation engages in quite commonly like my generation talks about the patriarchy constantly and we talk about misogyny we talk about macho culture we talk about all those things with like the understood agreement of what the patriarchy is and what that means whereas older generations probably have like they don't even have what we consider the base knowledge for that not because they don't want to learn but because they've grown up without like access to knowing what that means yeah absolutely and actually many of them if they would have had access to that at the time would have become educated and passionate about certain subjects but they simply didn't have those resources so there's a bit of a a lack a lag sorry before they've been able to um have access to doing their own research doing their own studies forming their own opinions which you have been able to do um you know at 16 years old you know we're about to and we are having a conversation about politics and it's kind of mind-blowing to me because it certainly just wasn't on my radar when I was 16 at all and and I find it so impressive speaking to um, people like yourselves about the you know the commitment and the effort that you go to as well not just to advocate for a cause but to 
as you say, use the internet, use this resource to educate yourself um, and go and find out about these issues. So on that topic, so when you're, you're, you're sort of tackling one of these social kind of questions or tensions, um, you mentioned uh, a few there, Me Too, uh, the patriarchy. Um, how, how do you go about that and where does it come from? Is it that you suddenly, you see something or you hear something and that kind of takes you down a certain um, direction? Like how does the actual journey of discovery take place in terms of platforms and um, interaction and that kind of thing? Well, for me, it happened when I was around 13, 12 or 13, and I got an Instagram account. Mm -hmm. And there's these accounts on Instagram that dedicate themselves to screenshotting posts off of Tumblr and then circulating them on Instagram. And Hmm. Like, as much as people like to say that's not original content or whatnot, it was actually what did it for me in terms of, like, exposing myself to different views on on things. Like, suddenly I was on Instagram, I was seeing other people's ideas, I was reading on, like, all these different points of view that were going on outside of me and outside of my bubble and I mean Mm. having just taken a class a sex ed class in which we were told that homosexuality was the opposite of healthy sexuality oh um, wow yeah I, I still have that book like that little booklet from that course and I look at it and I say like I can't believe this is what I allowed myself to be educated by because you know no mention of uh contraceptives no mention of Mm. safe sex no mention of Mm. anything except like the religious view of it which i mean in retrospect it's a catholic school i get it yeah i mean i'm going off topic here but basically i and i had this like time it like a transition period for me where i went from knowing nothing to like suddenly seeing all these posts and all of these things that broached serious subjects like gay rights, like feminism, mm. like safe sex in a like a in a very playful manner that seemed educated mm. about it. And I went through a phase where I became like basically like everything I saw, I I took in and I like admitted. So I I had this I became I don't know if you've Um, heard about them like those social justice warriors online that Mm -hmm. like that that are overly politically correct and that like that kind of thing I fell into that pattern for a while Mm -hmm. and then after that period is when I believe you start like looking at things more objectively Mm. and I thought I was the only one like on that boat of like, oh yeah, Instagram and social media taught me about all of these things. But I started talking to my friends and turns out they went through the same thing too. Like as soon as they got social media, they started seeing all these different ideas and all these different concepts about equality and what was right, what Mm. was wrong, like contemporary society and et cetera. And we must've been about 13 but yeah. that exposure I found was a lot more common than I had originally anticipated. And sometimes when I talk to some of those friends' parents, I can definitely tell, yep, it was it was social media that did it. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because I, I think most people think Instagram and you think, oh, it's like glossy, beautiful, 
images but actually for you um it opened up a kind of pandora's box of cultural learnings and looking through different lenses and tackling topics that you'd been educated about in one way and showing you the complete opposite of that um that's really interesting what i'm curious about is receiving all of that new information at age 13 which you know is is a time when there's a lot going on um and you know the 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 mind is very elastic and and you're kind of learning how to process things and I like the way you explain that you kind of jump straight into social justice warrior um which which I can understand the the process and the reaction there but were there any points where that just felt too much like did it feel overwhelming like how did you process all of this new information that you'd suddenly uh, unleashed at the beginning I think I I couldn't get enough of it like I followed all mm. these accounts and I wanted to keep reading but then after a while and I think that happened like around the middle of eighth grade when I was about 14 um 14 15 I just thought like this is too much like I can't I probably shouldn't be looking at all of these things and getting worked up about problems that don't even concern me I guess I had to learn to draw a line Mm. um, between that because when I got really into like social justice and what social media was spouting that was I mean that was a period that me and my friends jokingly call my emo face because we all (laughs) went through it and it it was a real thing for all of us and I think at the middle of eighth grade and kind of starting the transition toward high school and toward um, like that new, I guess, phase of maturity, I, I we, st- we all started thinking like if we, because that was like around the time where most studies about how social media makes you sad, like started to come out. Yeah. And so we, we thought, you know, we're, or I thought this is this is too much. I can't keep up with this if I'm going to devote my time to other things. Like I can't be glued to my phone reading about other people's problems all day mm. because that's not really like I I needed to do something else. And I think I I needed to like unglue myself from the mm. social conscience for a little bit to go back yep. into what I liked and then figure out a healthy balance between the two because then during that second half of eighth grade and summer, I was like completely unplugged from social justice. And then around ninth grade, I started reading back into it again. And Mm. I thought, well, this is, you know, this makes sense. I can strike a balance here. And to this day, I guess I've learned to separate a little better by keeping things in two different apps. Now I go Mm. to Instagram to look at photos and check out memes and like, all of that, whereas I I stick to Twitter for my political news and for my social justice. And so for me that, and that's like something that I've been attempting for the past couple months really, because my Twitter was pretty much irrelevant before then. But I started like doing that separation and it's worked Mm. for me in the sense that if I'm, all right, give me the political news, what's going on in the world. I just, I log on to Twitter. I look at what people are saying. Whereas if I'm, all right, I need a break. I'm going to go do something a bit more lighthearted. I choose Instagram. Yeah, I love that. It's almost like you're you're using the 
platforms to establish your boundaries. So your Instagram is for your fun, your joy, your play, and your Twitter's for your, you know, your thinking, your serious, um, and and your news. That's really smart. Um, very smart. I might adopt that myself. <laughs> it works definitely um, for when you don't want to get bombarded with everything, especially on Twitter. Yeah. And do do you do you tweet or do you follow? I mostly follow just because mm. I don't think I have like the platform to tweet yet. Maybe mm. maybe someday, but for now I just think like well, who's going to get interested in yeah like in what i'm saying right now because i don't i don't like my followers are my friends i use twitter mostly as like an informational site almost as if i was mm. reading the news mm. then so do you, f- like do you feel like you have post. to have oh sorry do you feel like you have to have a bit of credibility and um kind of a bit of status to be a tweeter i think so because i think um I mean, of course, if you have things to say, you should say them if they're important. But mm. at the same time, I don't see any reason to get myself immersed into the Twitter dialogue. Like, to to people that don't know me, I'm a 16-year-old mm. high school student from Mexico City. I'm not some politician. I'm not Bernie Sanders. I'm not Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Yeah. And dialogue on twitter has a reputation for turning hostile very quickly yeah so i just i see no reason to immerse myself on things that others have more of a platform to speak about than i do sure um, um if that's just gonna get me like attacked or into a, like an online fight or something yeah and i was gonna ask you about that kind of toxicity around discussions online particularly around social causes um politics those sorts of things um is it do you feel like it's it's good because it stimulates debate and everyone's as you say if you've got something to say you can say it or do you think it can put people off um advocating for things and joining in social causes because it feels like as you've described it actually you're you're not joining in in the discussions because you don't want it to to result in some kind of negative comment on you. Well, this is particularly interesting to me. In fact, uh, earlier on in the year, around March, I did a project for one of my classes that was a research project on polarization in social media and echo chambers. Hmm. And what I found in my research there was that online dialogue and like Twitter fights and trying to like you know the usual argument that um like online dialogue is a good exposure and that it reconciles both sides that actually doesn't hold true in the bigger scope of things a group Mm. of researchers from uh duke university in the u.s um actually like the president of the duke polarization lab there did an experiment where they uh so basically they got like a sample of Republican voters, like self-professed Republicans and a sample of self-professed Democrats that weren't extremists or anything. They just identified with that party's ideology in the U.S. And they paid them an incentive uh, to, for a month, follow a Twitter bot that would retweet and publish content from the other side. So Republicans would be seeing Democratic content, Democrats would be seeing Republican content. And what they found at the end of it was that 
being exposed to that content actually pushed them farther to their respective opinions. Like the Republicans were pushed farther to the right and the Democrats were pushed farther to the left in general. Mm. And so to me, that was interesting because it, you know, if the whole function of Twitter and these discussions is to start dialogue around it and to get people to like reconcile their ideas by seeing other people's ideas like that that did not work as expected and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that it's often the most extreme voices that are upheld in dialogue Mm. like we're we're more likely to hear about I mean, look at look at Donald Trump. Like he's he's constantly paraded and his tweets are everywhere and everybody sees them. But chances are the average Republican doesn't actually think like that. Like mm. chances are the average Republican isn't a far rightist. But mm. we tend to see a lot more of that extremism in online dialogue because that's what gets the most attention, that's what gets gets the most retweets, the most reactions, the most comments, simply because of how polarizing it is. So yeah. I think and the solution I came to in my in this research project that I devoted like a couple months to is that dialogue online isn't effective if people aren't educated and aren't out looking for attention. Because almost always if you tune into a thread um, that like somebody makes a a controversial comment about uh let's say like Billie Eilish and then somebody else replies to that and starts a thread and so you check into the thread to to see what's going on there and like what else they have to say and it's the thread is just another tweet that says since this is getting attention you guys should follow me Mm. so I think online dialogue does not work as well as in-person informed dialogue yeah, and it's interesting that whole theme around the loudest and the most extreme voices seem to be the ones at the moment that are getting the most airtime or the most followers or or the most positions of power in the most extreme cases. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if you think there's almost like a, a sort of trickle-down effect on young people or even on parents in that this is what they are starting to believe that they have to be able to speak louder, speak faster, speak more aggressively or more differently or more kind of extreme than anyone else. Otherwise, they're just going to kind of fold into the background and maybe not succeed in life. Like, is that is that too much of a leap? Or do you think there's potentially any risk of that kind of sending a message down just in terms of the way that you conduct yourselves in, in kind of day to day life? I I think it's a real problem the fact that we're out looking for attention more than Mm. ever before right now because we've I guess if there's a detriment to online culture is that it it sends out the message that if somebody's not like if if you're not the one being paid attention to then you're not like you're doing something wrong I guess Mm. in in social media and in online dialogue we tend to give the impression that your opinion is worth as much, like, is only worth as much as the attention it's getting. So if you have, like, a valid point of view, but it gets two retweets, it's going to seem less valid than the person who tweeted Muslims are terrorists and got a bazillion, like, reactions to that. Like, I think we're... 
in in social media and in the age of like social media dialogue attention is the currency we're dealing with mm. and i guess we're we're out looking for that mostly because of the value we give attention yeah totally agree i totally agree and can you see any impact of that on your kind of peer group your age group or even your generation like are there any issues that you can see in young people because they are dealing in the currency of attention all the time? I mean, mostly I see that in the shape of uninformed arguments. So I see Mm. that people like calling attention to their opinions. And unfortunately, a lot of the time, there are opinions that come from social media where again, like attention is the currency and people aren't like actually getting informed about things so i think that's creating a dangerous tendency to remain uninformed because if you can you know what what does it matter whether you're telling the truth or not as long as people are talking about it i mean even the president of the united states deals in that but to me to me it seems like among young people that's creating an incentive to become less informed in favor of becoming more like listened to because a lot of Mm. the thing a lot of the times those things don't go hand hand in hand yeah but at the same time like and it's ironic because young people like those that are informed and can gain attention while they're at it like uh alexandria ocasio-cortez who's super young and she tweets a lot and she gets a lot of attention but she she like she backs up her facts and so I, I find it ironic that while we like applaud those that manage to do both things, like be objective but gain attention, mm. we continue placing the greater value on attention. And so that turns yeah. like that turns politics into show business in a way that they have never been before. Mm. Yeah, it's a great point. And what about just sort of more broadly, what kind of issues challenges do you see amongst your age group um over here in the uk we have um a really big issue with anxiety um and mental health are you seeing similar things amongst your cohort over in mexico yeah i think mental health is being prioritized among my generation like really heavily in general no matter where you are in the world like where we're caring about that a lot more than we used to and we're finding strategies that help us and like I think that tends to be a general topic. I mean in in my opinion a lot of the topics that my generation cares about are global just because of how well communicated Mm. we are thanks to social media and thanks to like wide diffusion news. I think we all care about similar things like climate change. I mean, climate change, there are Fridays for Future marches all around the world. Um, I think we all care about feminism, about Mm. LGBT, marriage equality more than ever. Mm. Um, I mean, I think in terms of like unique concerns with teenagers where I'm from is, I mean, currently our government but in general, I'd say we have the same concerns as a generation, no matter where we are in the world, just mm. because we and, and we even like 
tune into other people's concerns. Like, I'm concerned about the 2020 presidential election in the US, and I'm not yeah. voting in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think we all are. <laughs> oh, I mean, yes, that, that certainly is true. <laughs> Remind me, what is the voting age in Mexico? It's 18. You know, your generation has entered the timeline at a very unique uh, point mm -hmm. in time. And you probably do need new thinking, new ideas, new radical approaches, uh, and perhaps um, those with more empathy towards what it feels like, perhaps not to have some of that baggage, to not feel like we just have to keep doing things like the way we've always done them, recycling the old people, because that's what we've always done. Um, mm -hmm. Time for something a little bit more, a little bit fresher. Yeah, and I mean, I also think we should have plausible ideas on the table. Like, that's mm. definitely something I'll look for. I mean, in the in the 2018 election here, we had this candidate that, like, if I could have voted, I would have voted for him because he was this guy in his early 40s, like, super young. Um, he was from a, like, he had never held a repeated amount of, like, times in office before, but he was an economist. You could tell he was prepared. And then he got up on the podium one night during a presidential debate and he said his solution to like education disparity in Mexico was just giving kids in poor communities iPads. And like that mm. is not a plausible mm. thing in a mm. country where the education system's failure is systematic, not just because we don't have technology. So I'd like to see proposals like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal, for example, she mm. like that that is backed by science, that is backed by research, that is plausible, like that's something she can genuinely pull off. And yeah. meanwhile, here we're getting a president that I've never liked, but that I was willing to give the benefit of the doubt to. And then he suggested building a train through the rainforests of Yucatan because that was apparently the way to get tourism to happen. Even if you had to endanger eight different like nature, nature parks and nature reserves to mm. get that project going. So I'd like to see some plausible ideas too. Yeah. And some yeah. ideas that target the larger things that we care about because whether I like it or not, I have to hand it to our current president that he did a great job of pandering to how upset we were at our last president and how corrupt he had been. And he did a great job of like pandering to that and saying that he wasn't going to repeat the government's mistakes and all of that. But And he's doing it. He's doing it again. But because during his campaign, he established himself as such a like a man of the people and such people are willing to forgive him no matter what he does even when he cancels mm. an airport that's a multi-billion dollar project that already has foreign direct investment and that would give mexico like an ability for international economic growth and he cancels it and suggests building a separate airport um turning a military base into a commercial airport by a mountain and by a toxic graveyard. So that's certainly not, that, that's certainly not plausible. And it, no. to me, I'm, I'm kind of getting tired of hearing proposals that have like, the expression in Spanish is that they don't have any head or feet. And it's just, I'm, I'm getting really tired of nothing being done and being basically mm. all talk. 
Yeah, and I think that's something that I hear quite a lot from um, your generation is very much the focus on the action um, and actually the sort of the, the change actually doing something feels like what's slightly different with the activism amongst your generation to perhaps the prior one um, in millennials who were quite good at kind of mobilizing around courses mm-hmm. and using social media to talk about things but it feels like that the, the shift between that generation and your generation is very much in you know the results <laughs> and actually m- making things happen really pushing things mm-hmm. through and obviously that you know that is difficult and um has its challenges but there certainly feels like a real fierce determination there that that's that's actually what you're after it's raising awareness going on marches talking on the internet it's all great but actually you know what you're really focused on um is is the actual seeing the result the action yeah cuz i mean it's not we're not deriding social media or anything it's it is a great way to organize things i mean the arab spring of 2010 around wouldn't have been possible without the organization that social media conferred yeah but at the same time like i i think my generation has a this big focus on going past just talk and i think mm. the reason why that is is that we like by the time we were old enough to do a change, like when I was 13 and I started caring about the world, social media was already there. Whereas for millennials, they they had to go without social media for a time before yeah. that tool was introduced. Mm. So they're like, wow, this is great. We should, we should use mm. it to our advantage. And it is great. It is certainly an advantageous tool. But I think my generation, having had it from the get-go, thinks this isn't enough there's other things we could do and i mean yeah look at greta thunberg who's a gen zer mm-hmm. and she's 16 and she's managed to pull off what is probably the largest counter climate change movement in recent mm. history and she's done that thanks to social media because after all that organization wouldn't have been possible in a global scale without like a global method of communication but i think she's a good case study in taking things past solely the digital conversation to the Mm. genuine physical action yeah it's incredible um what she's done absolutely incredible and and to your point about you know when you started having these ideas and questions and you were curious about these issues social media was right there for you and Mm -hmm. the way that you describe your experience from the kind of opening of the box and learning about these different viewpoints to the becoming the social justice warrior and then taking a step back from that putting up your boundaries you've done all that and you're still only 16. Mm-hmm. So you're in this incredible position of, you know, being on this journey with how to use this tool and experiment with it um, and figure things out, to, uh, you know, before you're, you're even at voting age yet. So that's really exactly as you say, something that no other generation has had. It's really amazing experience to have specifically with activism and kind of online um, communities it's really fascinating one thing I wanted to um, touch upon was this idea of brand purpose mm-hmm. so uh, we work for a lot of businesses who um, are aware that your generation is very heads up um, and your eyes are open to a lot of the social causes that are happening in the world um, and some of them have started to 
try and um, put more of a uh, cultural or social purpose underneath their brands by getting involved in certain um, causes Mm -hmm. or movements etc and I think there's been lots of examples quite well publicized that have gone really well um, and some that have gone less well and I wanted to get your point of view as someone that is obviously very engaged in these topics as to what role can brands play in um in kind of causes and movements are they welcome there or should they keep out i think increasingly brands are becoming unwelcome uh within interesting spaces for political dialogue mostly because we've realized that like our, my generation is very aware that they're doing it for profit and not for like and in a lot of cases for brands, they're doing it for profit and not because they genuinely care about the situation. So for my generation, it feels like that engagement is false because it, mm. it feels like they're profiting off of what we care about rather than actively contributing to it. And right now it's June. It's the perfect example of that. We have Pride Month going on and suddenly a lot of companies are releasing rainbow products and they're... Yeah tweeting about how cool it is to be at pride and all of that but i mean the records show otherwise in terms of how like they're Mm. they're allied and i think that's something that my generation's very like unique about the fact that we go in and find the records because i think that while most of us at the beginning of these patterns i think like pride month starting started being a big thing about two years ago and then when brands joined we were like oh this is so cool that you guys are like joining and all of that but then increasingly we've begun to look at the records and for example AT&T which was one of the first brands to um to adopt like a non-sexual discrimination policy in their in their like handbook and made mm-hmm. made made sure we knew that they were doing that and that they were allies donated a lot of money to a republican senator who is notorious for not backing lgbt people mm. so we're i guess my generation cares about congruence because i yeah. i guarantee that after pride month there will be no dialogue on lgbt equality from brands until the following june yeah and so yeah i I think you're absolutely right and it it kind of comes back to jumping into causes where you've never said anything about Mm -hmm. it before and perhaps some of the at the grassroots level exactly as you say of how your organization is run your employment contracts um which parties you donate to all of those things have to align don't they mm-hmm. um otherwise it just you guys will will suss it out yeah, <laughs> and you, you know you it, it just won't it, yeah. yeah you notice and, and it and it won't wash with you and and i think that's um i think that's very very true and becoming more apparent and also perhaps why we're seeing some of these underdog brands these smaller brands that are starting from a place right from the ground up where purpose is baked into the whole way that their business operates they seem to be able to deliver on purpose-led marketing I mean Tom's is a very obvious Mm -hmm. example but quite a good one Patagonia is another one but they seem to be able to to do it so well because it is it's filtered right down into every essence of how the business is run 
yeah, Patagonia is fantastic. Pat Patagonia is like a great example of a brand. And I actually did use it for another research project this year on consumers and as an example of like appropriate marketing because they, mm. they market like they offer to repair your gear so you don't like buy another one yeah lead into consumerism they encourage like reusing but at the same time you don't see patagonia constantly tweeting about it like you don't see patagonia going guys we're so great because we're so conscious about consumerism and i think that's what makes it feel genuine to a lot of people my mm. age if you have and and the same thing with tom's i don't think i've ever seen a tom's tweet that like denotes their purpose or their motivation like they just do it mm. and so i think that oh that that actually might connect to the fact that my generation is more about action and not just like yeah all yeah. bark no bite because mm. and i think what my generation is demanding is you know for companies if you care so much about pride month donate to research into hiv donate to um like awareness projects about transphobia and about homophobia, like start getting engaged Absolutely. in the things yeah. instead of just trying to sell yourself as part of that. And Completely. if you're going to make like a funny social media presence out of you, you don't use it to market. Like look at Wendy's. Wendy's is incredibly sassy. They're always funny. They're the original like sassy Twitter brand. But they, <laughs> they just always reply to customers that way. I I mm. never saw Wendy's tweet that was like, um, like, you know, we're the sarcastic brand you love. Come eat with us. Whereas that's something like when Burger King tries to imitate that pattern, they're like, ah, yes, come eat at Burger King because we are superior in terms of online sarcasm. Like, we don't like it when messaging has and a very 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 overt profit intention with it hmm. you know it's either if you're going to be yeah. engaged in social media do it the way wendy's does without without copying them of course because there's a lot yeah. of like brands out there that are just trying to rip off like wendy's style i'd hmm. say but make it like give us give us a trail to follow in terms of what you're doing for the causes you're you're posting to care about like if mm. you if you say you care about gay people then give us the like what you're doing for them like i'm not going to buy your products because you say you're an ally if you don't give me a genuine reason to and cards against humanity i actually posted about this on hack squad a few times last summer cards against mm. humanity released a pride pack that you know it was during pride month it could have been interpreted as something that cards against humanity was doing only to profit from pride month but on the web page where you got those cards it said that the proceeds from that card from those cards would go to funding like pro lgbt organizations and mm. they gave us a follow-through on that like they showed us where the yeah. money went and that's a great example and I think that is probably a good place to end this chat where we can say 
Less talk, more action, mm-hmm. I think, is, is how we could summarise some of the things that we've been talking about. Ale, thank you so much. Uh, you are fascinating and incredible human, and I really hope to see you running for 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 office one day. Perhaps. You definitely have my vote. Thank you for <laughs> having Have a me lovely enough. day in Mexico City. You are so very welcome, and we will see you on Hack Squad soon. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much, Emma.